when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. On today's episode, I'm talking to Beyond Meat founder and CEO Ethan Brown about a very big problem, replacing meat in the food supply with something that is more sustainable and climate-friendly. That's what Beyond Meat does. It takes plant protein and turns it into convincing substitutes for chicken, beef, and pork. I last interviewed Ethan on the Vergecast before Beyond Meat IPO'd in 2019, and it's been quite a ride since then, as the pandemic sharply impacted the stock, restaurants everywhere closed, and the entire food world generally turned upside down. But the company has come out of that with a rising stock price, some big deals to supply quick service restaurants like Pizza Hut and Dunkin', and a growing business selling to consumers in grocery stores. I talked to Ethan about how Beyond Meat is structured, how he's thinking about growing, and how the pandemic has changed the trajectory of the company. One thing that really jumped out to me, Ethan's really focused on capturing market share quickly. He's one of the few CEOs I've ever talked to who's admitted to making decisions based on how fast they would increase market share. It was honestly kind of refreshing. One note, you'll hear me call Ethan out for taking two subtle shots at Impossible Foods, which is also in the plant-based meat business. Specifically, Ethan says Beyond Meat doesn't use GMO ingredients and that there's some controversy around heme iron, which is a key ingredient in Impossible's product. We went back and double-checked with Verge Science reporters Justine Kalma and Nicole Wetzman, who said that use of heme iron and other GMOs aren't big red flags. In fact, there isn't much research on whether any kind of plant-based meat substitute is healthier than regular meat. But you'll hear Ethan talk about it and talk about competing with Impossible, so I thought it was important for you to have that context in mind. And, of course, I asked him if he could make a burger that tasted like a brontosaurus. All right, Beyond Meat CEO Ethan Brown. Here we go. Ethan Brown, you're the founder and CEO of Beyond Meat. Welcome to Decoder. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, you and I have uh, talked before, even on the Rushcast, but this is a new show, so we have to start at the start. Beyond Meat, as I understand it, is a plant-based meat company. It's right in the name. Uh, you IPO'd last May. You've, you've had quite a run since then. I want to talk about all of that, what's happening next, but 
Start at the start. How did the company start? You're, you're the founder. What was the process of starting Beyond Meat for you? Sure. Um, so thanks for the opportunity to, to explain our, our, our background and story. So we really, I began thinking about this brand and idea a long time ago. We've been in business 12 years now, but, but even before that, allowing it to kind of percolate and try to focus it and refine it and get it into a, a concept that I thought had legs. And it began, uh, I think, really early for me as a child. I had a just wonderful uh, opportunity as a kid to grow up both in the city and, and spend a lot of time in the countryside. And so my father's a professor. Uh, at the time, he was uh, teaching in Maryland and did not like being in the city. And he grew up in the country himself and uh, really wanted that experience for his kids. And that's where he was. He felt most uh, at home. And so we bought a farm uh, in the western uh, part of the state of Maryland and one up in Maine. And uh, that's where I spent my time, you know, uh, when I wasn't uh, at school or otherwise required to be in the city. And so I really was exposed early on to, you know, the beauty of nature, uh, the specialness of life in nature in terms of the other forms of, of life. And then as, as we got into it, uh, my father started a dairy operation there. So we had 100 head of Holstein cattle. And I began to, to understand agriculture and, and uh, really enjoyed being there. And uh, But I had a, an issue where... For me as a kid, I was uh, had difficulty understanding the kind of key biological differences between uh, the animals we kept in the barn and those that we had in our house as, as companions. And, you know, was it the, the one the fact that one was hooved and one had a paw, one had a snout, one had a you know, nose, whatever the distinctions were. And they obviously have big differences, but which ones were differences that were sufficient enough to merit different treatment, right? And that kind of stuck with me. And because I didn't grow up on a farm, I think I, I never had that speech. And if you, if you read the example I'll use, if you read E.B. White, his terrific book, Charlotte's Web, there's kind of a moment in that book where the father explains to the daughter, this is the way life is. Like, you know, we're going to take this pig, slaughter this pig. My dad's a philosopher, you know, he's trained at Columbia, he's a very deep kind of thinker about ethical issues. And he never said that to me. You know, he just said, you kind of have to figure this one out. And so, you know, he didn't have a particular view on it. But I, I grew up and, and kind of put that aside and went to, uh, to college and grad school and then went to um, into the energy sector and was having a great career in energy. I loved, I worked uh, for a company that the leading company in the world on proton exchange membrane fuel cells, uh, which is a terrifically elegant technology. And that was about climate for me. I really wanted to make an impact on climate. And it dawned on me through research and, and others' work that livestock was driving a lot of climate problems we were having. So here I had this issue that I had, had sort of the child. I had the ability to uh, think about making a career change and still be impactful uh, with respect to climate. And then once you start thinking about human health and the use of water, land, energy, it became clear to me that if you could figure out a way to separate meat from animals, I'm not talking about convincing people to vegetarian or create a, a meat alternative. I started to think about what is meat and how do we build meat differently? And that was the genesis of the company. How, how big is the company now? Uh, we're about uh, 500 folks and we're here in Los Angeles where we have the Manhattan Beach Project, which is our research and development center. We're about 150 scientists and engineers. We have production throughout the country. So 500 and some employees now, 150 scientists in LA, big IPO, hot stock, very common brand name. How did you go from, I want to re-engineer meat to this point? You know, I think it's it's about singularity of focus. And the, the way that we think about meat is instead of focusing on its origin, saying, you know, insisting it has to come from a chicken, cow, or pig, which is how, you know, throughout the course of agriculture, we, we've thought about it. 
Instead, think about the composition of the animal protein. And that really liberates you to uh, innovate in a really exciting way. And what I mean by that is if you actually take a look at what animal protein or meat is as a material, it's an understandable entity. It's not a mystery. It's not alchemy. It's five things. It's amino acids, it's lipids, it's trace minerals, it's vitamins, and it's water. None of those things are exclusive to the animal. Your know, life is united by its constituent parts. Plants have the same uh, inputs as animals in many cases, just organized differently and expressed differently, right? And so our job is to find the amino acids and lipids and trace minerals and vitamins from non-animal sources, but then organize them against the architecture of, of muscle or meat. And you know what's really neat about that is you go to any land-grant university in the country, they'll have a, probably a pretty good meat science department. You can go in that meat science department, you can get a textbook on meat science, you can open it up and there it is. There's, <laughs> there's the architecture of meat. They literally, so we, we took that a step further. We said, we're going to start putting meat on our MRIs like you would your knee. We're going to start putting it into some of the most sophisticated biomedical technology out there to understand its structure, the distribution of fat, water, et cetera. So we stay so focused on that, saying, how do we deliver to the consumer, not a meat substitute, but a piece of meat that's been built directly from plants. And, and why do we say that? Because if you think about it, what's the animal doing? They're consuming a lot of plants. They're consuming a lot of water. What do we use? We use inputs from plants and we use water. So we're just simply skipping the animal. And it was that singular focus, trying to do it better than anybody else in the world, do it quicker than anybody else in the world, invest more than anyone's ever invested before to do this. Take a step back and look at energy where I came from. We didn't think anything else spending a billion dollars to develop a proton exchange membrane fuel cell. You go into food and you look at like Kraft, how much are they actually spending on you know, what they call meat substitute? Maybe a couple scientists working on it at best. And you know it's very, very much a a kind of cottage project. Whereas what we said is let's take big science, let's take investment, let's get a clear goal, which is to build meat perfectly from plants. And let's bring together the type of research team you'd see at a solar company or the type of research you'd see at a, a lithium ion battery company. And let's fund them and then get out of their way. And the second piece on how we got to where we are is there's a sense of urgency to what we're doing. You know, if you look at what's happening in the climate and in, in our healthcare system today, I'll give just one example. My son is in the back here uh, at our office today. We have a little hoop set up in one of the warehouses. He's, he's practicing there. I don't know, maybe six weeks ago, there was a day where his team could no longer, his high school team could no longer practice in the gym because of COVID, right? People were being too close to each other, so they had to practice outside. And then they could no longer practice outside because of all the forest fires we're having here in the LA area and the quality of the air. Both of these things, the zoonotic diseases and the, the level of fire that we're having right now are driven by whether it's encroachment or, or just simply emissions, we have to figure out a way to live within the boundaries of the ecosystem that we've been given. And in both cases, we violated those boundaries. And, and so the world has become a very challenging place. We have to fix that. And we have a key solution here. So there's an urgency to what we do that helps us uh, get things done quicker than anybody else. So you said big investment on the scale of an energy company. What were those conversations like as you, as you went out? I mean, I want to replace the animal in the meat production cycle. I think we all understand it now. Beyond Meat exists. Impossible exists. There's other companies doing it. It's a market. People seem to be taken with it. You just signed a deal with Pizza Hut. Yep, we all get it now. But in the beginning, there had to be a, a, quite a bit of skepticism. How did you overcome that initial skepticism? You know, the first thing I had to overcome was my own skepticism. Right. Like I had a pretty decent career going in uh, in energy. I uh, was reporting right into a CEO at a publicly traded company. It was a, a good, good career. And the thought of going off into the wilderness, starting a, a company that, you know, was trying to do this 
was intimidating to me in the sense that it wasn't, I think, what was expected of me. And it took me a long time to insist on writing my own script versus listening to what others think I should be doing. You know, not no one was overtly telling me something, but you grow up with these images in your head of what you should be doing, and they're very hard to shed. And so it took me a long time to get the courage to to do it from a kind of disruption perspective. I had young kids at the time. I, had, I was I'm making some, you know, I was making decent money and, and all these other things. And so anyway, it took me a while to say, okay, this is something that's worth a complete change in, in how you're spending your time. So I got over that. And then it was getting people to think about it. I remember talking to my neighbor who was an attorney and I was trying to say, what should we call this product? What should we call this? Because I don't want to call it a meat substitute. I don't want to call it a meat alternative. And one of the things I was playing with was plant protein, which people use. And this was probably in 2009 or so. And he said, yeah, but that sounds a lot like something like you feed your fish. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, just trying to get a sense of how people would think about this and, you know, friends would tease me about, you know, how's your tofu factory going and stuff like that. You know, I said, that's not what I'm doing, you know? And so, so from a marketing perspective, in terms of how to communicate this concept of plant-based meat, it was really clear to me once we started the company and I had grown up in the era of milk does a body good. And, and then, and then they got milk, uh, got milk pain. And what was so clever about that is they used some of the most beautiful you know, physical specimens in the world to convince parents that children needed milk to flourish, right? I mean, that was the genesis and the, the architecture and the intent of that campaign. And so I actually hired the guy that was the first sponsor of that program and at the, the California Milk Board, a guy named Jeff Manning. And he and I uh, began to work together to craft something called the future of protein. And the idea there was to, you know, marketing is so much easier when it's true, right? And in our case, it's true. Like if you consume our products, you're going to, and I'll talk about this later, you're going to have your body's going to start to feel better. You're going to have better performance. Uh, and then you're also going to be better protected against long-term diseases like heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. And so once you have that truth understood, let's inspire people versus lecture them, right? And so we started to work with some world-class athletes and asked them to invest in the company. They started to invest and then more and more started to invest, more and more started to get associated and kind of started to steamroll. But the idea is I needed to attack head on, this is for 2012, 13, 14, the idea that you needed animal protein to be vital and to be masculine and to be strong. That is, there's just no scientific uh, evidence for that. What's true is you need a certain set of amino acids and lipids and minerals and vitamins, but whether they come from plants or animals is not the issue. It's the delivery mechanism. And are you delivering a source that the body's going to utilize well, and it doesn't have other things along with it that are bad for you. Now, just elaborate on that one point for a second. If you think about the animal's muscle, what the animal's muscle is there for is to do work, right? So it's not necessary that it was not designed for consumption, right? It was designed to get from point A to B, escape predators, catch game, things like that. And so in that muscle, there are things that we don't want to eat a lot of. You know, the things like cholesterol, there's things like um, heme iron, there's things like uh, um, stimulants uh, for TMAO in our gut. There's um, all these different things you want to try to avoid. We can deliver to athletes and anyone else in the world all the good parts of animal protein without the negative parts. And so when you see a Chris Paul or you see a Kyrie Irving, they're seeing themselves benefit from a plant-based diet or, or leaning in, right, in a way that gives them a competitive advantage. If I'm a 12-year-old boy or girl, and I see, if I'm a girl, I see Maya Moore, for example, who's a tremendous basketball player. I see Lindsey Vaughn. I'm going to get motivated and inspired, and that's how we market. So I 
there's a lot of things there that I want to dive on, but I, I start by asking structural questions. How is your company organized? Do you have like a chicken division and a breakfast sausage division? How do you build a company like this? Right. Yeah, we do. We have platforms basically. And that's how I think about them. And, and you know, again, I think coming from where I, I was in the energy sector, it's a natural way to think about things. You know, we have a beef platform, we have a pork platform, we have a poultry platform. And there are differences, you know, like quick twitch muscle animals have different muscle fiber and structure than, than undulates or, or the larger, slower animals. Uh, so you, there are some distinctions there, but at a core asset level, you can use the same asset in each case, right? That understanding of how to source and stitch together amino acids and lipids and then flavor systems that impart the tremendous you know, enjoyment we get from consuming animal meat. And so just on that point about flavor, I think some of the most interesting work we're doing is there's about 4,000 molecules that make meat taste like meat. And the game here is to understand which molecules are driving the majority of the flavor for the consumer, for the human sensory experience, right? You know, that's what's so, like, I have a bloodhound at home and his nose, you know, is, <laughs> is incredible, right? So ours, we don't have to get to that level, right? But whatever is imparting to the human sensory system, that, that experience, that aroma, we have to figure out. And so we use mass spectrometers, we use all kinds of different things to understand what's the key 20%, let's say, that's driving that experience, right? And then it becomes a combination game, right? Like back in mathematics, like, you know, it's, it's, there's so many different molecules. So how do you combine them in the right structure to get that, that, that delicious aroma and, and taste and, 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 and mouthfeel and all those other things? And that's what we work on every day here. Does your pork platform team get competitive with your beef platform team? It's <laughs> just like a regular tech company, you know, like the, the the phone team is mad at the laptop team for taking more resources. Like, how do you manage that kind of scaling? That's awesome, man. You know, it's funny, uh, man. I mean, I think we, we, we are a very competitive group, but it's a one team. You know, I mean, I think we, we want to be that, that group of people that in this generation separates meat from animals, you know, and, and people always ask, oh, you have competitors. Are you guys truly competitive? Or are you all just trying to reform the protein sector? I think the answer is both. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, if we're honest, right, it's not always, you know, kumbaya. We've been working at this for, you know, 12 years and, and uh, people invested their careers in this and their lives and we want to win, you know, and I think there's anything wrong with that. But, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I think told the story before, but where I went to school, we had a, in the computer lab, had a poster of an apartment building, probably somewhere in New York. And there was one light turned on, it was late at night. And in that one apartment, there was someone sort of punched over a computer working. And it just had a simple sentence at the bottom, said somewhere someone is working harder on your idea than you are. And I loved that poster because that, it's true, right? And I want, I couldn't find it. So I just ended up putting that quote, <laughs> that statement on a, on a white canvas and hung it up in our lab. And uh, the head of the research department at that time came to me and said, Ethan, people are really concerned about that quote. Like, who's working harder than us? I was like, no, no, no. It's just like a general kind of motivational thing. I said, okay, fine. Maybe a couple of weeks later, I was like, you know, Ethan, what's going on with that? Like, people are really still talking about it. I said, well, no, think about it this way. So think about it, it's like it could hang in a locker room or something. You know, someone's just working hard. He said, Ethan, mostly people have never been in a locker room, <laughs> so like, was, which was an exaggeration. A lot of good athletes in our, in our side story. But I, I had to, you have to learn about what competition is for that particular person and how to succeed yeah, and, and what, what drives them. One question I, I'm asking everybody in the show, and I think it's particularly interesting for you because you have a lot of uh, decisions to make in, across a lot of different areas. What is your framework for making decisions as you've grown the company? 
this sounds sort of, you know, servant leadership type, you know, jargon, but we try to be a service. We really do. And that's ingrained in what we are as a company. You know, uh, how do we serve the consumer to make them healthier, make them better, help them improve? How do we serve our customers? You know, I love working with our customers because I grew up eating all their food. I grew up eating KFC and Pizza Hut and, and McDonald's and all the guys we work with and Duncan. So we want to be a service to them. How do we make them successful? How do we go to battle for them in the marketplace to make sure that they're bringing more people into their stores than their competition, right? And so first is how can we serve and then impact? You know, I am probably hopelessly focused on market share. That's what drives me, right? Is, is, is how many people uh, are buying our products, right? So I'll sacrifice, I probably shouldn't say this too, too loudly, but you know, I'm more focused on market share than margin, let me put it that way. You know, because this is, a, this is a time of change in, in culture and in the world. And we want to help people make that change. And one of the things that we don't want to do is ask the question, are you willing to pay more for this? I'd rather just ask the question is, is this something you want and get it to price parity? And so I'm very focused on trying to establish market share to the point where we can sell at price parity. And so, so that when I think about moves in business, I'm thinking about being a service how much market share we can get by making this particular decision. And those things help clarify, clarify for us. I think the last piece is this is the voice of the consumer. You know, it gets back to that service. You know, you can ask everybody in tech or in pharma or, or a certain extent, some of these new food companies, ask the question, what can science do? Okay, you know, it's a pretty simple question. What can science do? Can it build meat directly from plants? The answer is yes. Over time, we'll be able to do it perfectly. But I think the second question is what should science do? And that's a really important question that we ask around here a lot. Should we genetically modify plant inputs to create products that we want to create? We won't do it. I refuse to allow it. Here's why. It's not that I'm against GMOs per se, but there's been too many unintended consequences. You know, when we think that we can manipulate and control something within nature, we often learn that we can't. Right. And so if you look at, you know, there's if you look at the history of DDT as an example, not, it's not genetically modified issue, but if you look at that. Amazing in terms of stamping out malaria, not so great in terms of being used as a pesticide, right? Horrible consequences from that, right? So we have to figure out once we create something, what are all the downstream unintended consequences? And, and so I think very strongly that everything we need is already in nature and we just have to go find it. All right. So that's not so subtle. That's two yeah. shots. That's two shots at impossible now. So we're going to talk about your competition. You mentioned heme based iron, which is impossible's big ingredient. You talked about GMOs, which is impossible foods, a genetically modified product. They're your competitor. You're saying you're, you're focused on market share over margin. You're now a public company. The last time we talked, you were pre IPO, you were still venture backed. You could lose money to get market share. You've got a different set of people that you're responsible and accountable to in your, your, stockholders. How are you thinking about that competition with Impossible? Because it is a very different kind of product. Yeah. So, I mean, I, mean, I really genuinely believe this. I'll, I'll lay out some distinctions, but my first and, and, and truly sincere comment is that, you know, this is a, a field that, that attracts really great and talented people, far more talented than, than myself. And we have them here and, and Impossible has some too. They've got great people. You know, they really do working on all the right problems in the world and things like that. And I respect them, you know, uh, as a competitor. I mean, the NBA would not be a lot of fun if there was like one team. <laughs> if you, <laughs> you watch, ever, like, when people said, "Who are we competing against?" Were you ever like, "It's it's Impossible Foods." <laughs> uh, you know, I think the the thing with them is 
if they're going out and spending a ton of money on marketing, it does benefit us, right? Because it's creating a category with us, right? And so I'm glad they're here. I'm glad if they weren't being successful, it'd be trouble for me, right? So there's a lot of good things about Impossible Foods. But there's also a distinction between our two companies and it's really up to the consumer to decide. Uh, again, it gets back to this. I've looked through all of the research on heme iron, right? And it's too controversial for me to use, you know? And we've had suppliers come in here and, and, and ask uh, whether or not we'd like to, to have a, uh, some sort of supply with them that, that would get us a heme iron. And I just don't think that it's necessary. I also, you know, you look at the literature and I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. Uh, so, you know, but I'm just someone who loves to read and it's not clear. Right. And so that lack of clarity concerns me. Right. The, wait, the specifically literature on heme iron or on GMS? Yeah. No, or on heme iron. On heme okay. iron. Yeah. So that, that just gives me pause. Not saying it's bad, you know, but that's their fight. I don't want to have to deal with that. Right. And so um, I, I listen to the consumer. The consumer so often would tell me, because when you don't have venture money to begin with, you rely on revenue to keep your doors open. Right. So I would be in stores sampling on our products and people would say, you know, no GMOs. I heard it again and again and again and again, particularly from our early adopters, right? And so it got, I, I began to say, okay, this is something I really need to focus on. And I've stayed true to that. And the second piece is, if you look at our profile in terms of saturated fat, it's really important to me that when I give this burger to my parents, right? That, so their, their assumption is it's gonna be healthier because it's a healthy, it's a, it's a, it's a plant-based product. That's what people think, right? Because they've heard for so long that, you know, plants are, are, are healthier than animal protein. And if I am then loading that up with saturated fat, is that fair to the consumer, right? I don't think it is. So you look at the levels of saturated fat that we use, 35% less than ground beef. The new burger coming out next year will have, will have 55% less saturated fat than ground beef. It's really important to me that we're conquering two goals at once, health and doing something good for the planet. And I think there's a, there's a symmetry, there's a ability to do something that's great for your body and great for the earth. And it's probably not a coincidence. One of the things you're describing here, I think is conceptually really interesting. You're making a substitute for meat products that taste like meat products or better than meat products, maybe in some cases, but they're, they're not meat products and you actually change them nutritionally. How much of your approach to marketing the product is to just say, eat this instead of a burger, it's better for you, but it will taste exactly the same versus it's a different product that's better. How much do you have to be in the meat replacement business versus the, here's a superior cheeseburger business? Sure, no, I get it. I mean, one of my favorite analogies for all this is this thing right here. You know, this is a you know iPhone. Nobody had to denigrate the landline to make this thing successful. You know, people didn't have to walk around being like the landline's going to kill you, <laughs> you know, like like it's bad for you, right? <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's just we came up with something better, right? And and so that's really the way I run this company is I'm trying to create a better piece of meat. I don't have to, you know, look, we we evolved eating meat. We talked about this before, you know. We wouldn't be who we are. We wouldn't be having this conversation had you know one of our ancestors, the author Pisipicanus, hadn't decided to become more rather than less carnivorous. It gave our stomachs the kind of nutrient dense food that allowed our stomachs to shrink, and our brains grew as a result because all that energy went to our to our brains. So it gave us this incredible capacity we have. But that doesn't mean that we can't figure out a better way to do it. And that's really what I'm trying to do, and our company's trying to do. And so it is a better product, in my view. It's not just about 
hey, here, like for like, right? It's, it's something that if we're going to start with a blank canvas, which is a beautiful place to start anything, we can populate that canvas with the very best it's in meat and keep the bad stuff out. And that's the promise that I'm making to consumers. Are you a vegetarian? I'm vegan, actually. Okay. So, do you, but you eat beyond meat. I eat a ton of it. <laughs> well, I, I assume you do. So uh, that's like a really interesting conceptual question as well, right? It's, it's called beyond meat. You're a vegan. It's right. supposed to make all these products that remind people of meat, have the cultural associations of meat. How do you think about that problem that every vegan should just start eating what looks and feels like animal protein? Yeah. I mean, it's a very good question. It's not for everybody. And, and we've had people who interviewed at the company who've said, you know, they're very passionate about vegan issues. And and, and we asked them, you know, the, the most honest one to say, you know, have you had our products? I can remember uh, one who was particularly straightforward. It was like, I, I, they're too similar to meat. I don't like to eat them, you know? And, and so for the Western world, you know, I look at my own upbringing and, and the life around me and and I think it's going to be very hard to achieve the challenges, to, to see the solutions that we're trying to achieve on climate and health and everything else by convincing people to eat salad. You know, I think salad's an incredibly important part of the diet. <laughs> but, you know, are your kids going to be the kids that when everyone's having a hot dog after the baseball game are, you know, having a kale salad? I doubt it. Well, there's other. So, I mean, you're a vegan. There's many other foods besides yeah. salad. Yes, there are, but 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 I think that the 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 centrality of meat to our culture, at least here, you know, in the, in the West, is uh, is so powerful that I'd rather attack this through technology than through philosophy. You know, I, I think I think uh, I'd rather just create something that's so indistinguishable that it's you know, see, if you think about this. These are three levers that we have to keep pressing on to grow. Taste, let's get it to be indistinguishable from animal protein. By taste, we're talking about everything, sensory, mouthfeel, et cetera. Second, nutrition. Let's get really clear benefits so the consumer truly understands this is better for them than animal protein. Third, price. Let's, like any other cost curve, semiconductors, uh, computers, let's drive that cost curve down to the point of parity and then below animal protein. It becomes a very unusual consumer that says, I'm still not going to eat that. If you get the taste right, you get nutrition right, and it's, and it's either at parity or below. So I think that's the biggest way to get the market, the best way to get the market rather, and the biggest share of it. Okay, so I'll, I'll, if, you, if you think about nomenclature in general, you know, nobody's calling this phone a phone substitute or a fake phone or a phone alternative. It's a phone, right? It doesn't connect to the wall, so it's different, right? The mental space we have to occupy in people's minds is that this is just a new form of meat. That's what's critical. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk about the impact of the pandemic on the industry and the market. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com decoder. 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Okay, we're back. One of the big things we heard about during the pandemic, you've been talking about market share a lot and how you're aggressively focused on it. During this pandemic, we have heard from traditional meat providers that their facilities were had to be shut down, that they were letting animals go, that people were getting sick in those facilities. Was that an opportunity for you? Were you, were you able to ramp up to meet demand as traditional meat supply went down? You know, it was tragic watching all that happen, uh, both on the human side and the animal side. And I think the opportunity, you certainly, I mean, beef prices spiked. And so that was uh, obviously a pricing opportunity for us when we came out with a lower cost value pack. And, uh, and so from that perspective, I think the bigger thing that happened was it on the nightly news, you know, you turn it on and you'd see footage of meat processing facilities, right? You know, not, not particularly graphic, but you just got a sense for what they're like, you know, with the people packed together, the carcasses moving, you know, uh, blood, all these things. So, so it was brought home to the American consumer how meat gets to the center of their plate today. That was an opportunity for us because we're very proud of process. You could come, literally, you could get in your car, drive out to Missouri, knock on the door of a facility, and I'd absolutely make sure you had a tour, right? And that's, that's my promise to every consumer because we're proud of how our product is made, right? It goes through a simple process of heating, cooling, and pressure to basically reset the proteins in the form of, of, of muscular uh, protein. But the challenge is you can't do that at today's meat facilities. They won't let you in. And so what have we gotten to in our, in our food culture, in our, in our own culture today, where you can't see the process under which your food is prepared? I don't think that's right. And so that's an opportunity for us to draw that distinction around transparency. What does your factory look like? Is it there's a conveyor belt of peas and a conveyor belt of beets <laughs> and outside the other is... There's a door marked pork and a door marked chicken. What is the actual uh, yeah. factory process like? How big is this factory? It's big. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a little like that what you just described. Um, but <laughs> I was uh, literally thinking of the Simpsons episode with Duff Beers in the in the tubes. I'm hoping it's a little more sophisticated. Than that. <laughs> there's no there's no Mr. Burns. <laughs> My favorite Mr. Burns quote is that since the dawn of time, man has yearned to block out the sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems more and more true by the day. I got to be honest. With you. Uh, so, what's the factory like? It's this process of heating, cooling, and pressure, and it occurs 
And we have a proprietary system that we use, and it really a lot of the technology is in, in something called a die, which is the final stage. And you're putting in these inputs, you're putting in protein that's been extracted from, and it's actually a really fascinating process. I'll explain it very quickly. So you separate the protein from the fiber. So you, you, you mill a, a legume or a pulse, uh, and, and uh, the, the protein and fiber are, are together, right? And you put those in an aqueous-based process uh, that's basically put them in water, with, and you change the pH level in the water. And that affects the separation between the fiber and the protein. That protein's in dried. We send it through a system of, of essentially doing that resetting. So let's say protein exists, and I'm holding my hands up like a church steeple. This it looks like this in plants, I'm making these forms up. And we need to break it and then reset it so it stitches together. And now my hands look like two people holding hands. Um, that's the process we're doing, right? And so that occurs through application of heat, application of cooling, and application of pressure. Then from that point forward, a lot of what we do looks like a conventional meat facility. In fact, so much so that we send some of our products to uh, people that are also operating conventional meat facilities and they do the forming. So instead of getting a side of beef or, or side of or, or, or ground beef in let's say a thousand pound tote, they're getting our matrix of protein and fat in a thousand pound tote. That's then being formed into burgers or sausage or what, what have you. So after the step of protein formation, it's pretty similar to 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 how meat is uh, is prepared. Staying on the, the market share point for a second, you talked a lot about your partners and being in service to them, Pizza Hut, KFC, et cetera. Is your big market the restaurants or is it consumers at grocery stores? So we were 50-50 when we came into the, the 2020 year. And then with COVID, we went very dramatically toward uh, retail at 12% uh, percent, uh, food service, 88% uh, retail, which was difficult. But we have such passion uh, for the QSR space, the quick serve restaurant space. And some of our you know, most important work has occurred there where, you know, if you look at the early launch we did in Canada with A&W or the subway work or, or Starbucks, et cetera, a lot of it gives the consumer the beyond meat experience where they're used to eating and inform factors they're used to consuming. So getting a breakfast sausage at Dunkin' with our, our sausage in it, you know, so many people have said it's indistinguishable or better, right? And so QSRs and, and are really important to us. Quick serve restaurants are really important to us from the perspective of getting the product to people where, where they want to, to consume. And in fact, I believe so strongly in, in that idea that we're enabling people to do the things they like doing that I trademark the phrase, eat what you love. We're not about telling you not to go and have you know, chicken tenders. We're just giving you a better way of doing it. And so QSRs help us to do that. But retail is also extremely important to control our narrative, to control our brand. Right? That's where you directly connect with the consumers. Both are really important to us moving forward. In the pandemic, obviously, the restaurant industry was hit. You said it was difficult. Did you see orders crash from the restaurant industry immediately? Was it a slow wave or did right. that sort of meat processing world collapse actually improve things for a minute there? It was tough overall. I mean, it was a, the, the biggest kind of, if I had to do a single word about just how, to, how, how running the business was difficult during this entire period is variability. The consumer behavior was so quickly turning, right? It was, you know, you had the shutdown, so food service literally just went from you know, going 60 miles an hour to, to almost, you know, let's say five miles an hour. And then you had a massive stock up in the second quarter as people began to panic and buy all the groceries they could. And then that kind of slowed grocery consumption because people's freezers were full. And then you have partial relaxation of stay at home and then you have stay at home come back on. So it's just been really hard to manage inventory this year. That's been the biggest issue for us. 
And so, you know, like everybody else, man, we are just really looking forward to this vaccine kicking in and getting back to business. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about what's next for Beyond Meat. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back. I want to talk to you about what we might expect to see from you in the future. One of the things about your products is, and we've talked about this before, but a chicken tender, a sausage, a cheeseburger, those are all relatively processed forms of meat. You're talking about meat processors taking, traditional meat processors taking your protein blend and making that stuff. You're still not at, you can make a steak. You can't make a pork chop. Is that on your roadmap? Is that, do you think you need to get to that place? So, uh, yeah, so it's Tom Philpott, and I'm looking at my, across my screen here, you can't see it, but the quote in my office that, that he wrote in Mother Jones in, in January of 2015, I've got these quotes around my office, which is motivational. But it said, Beyond Meat will never be able to introduce pea protein into one end of the machine and extrude a convincing substitute for seared steak or roasted chicken from the other. So he's wrong, um, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> uh, but we're spending a lot of money to, to make sure that he's wrong. And what that gets to is as you get into these whole muscle factors, right, it becomes clearer to the consumer's eye, the distribution of fat and the distribution of protein. And so, you know, steak is a perfect example. You can see the marble fat and you can see where the protein lays. And so uh, it's not as easy as a minced or, or ground, but the technology that we have available to us is so extraordinary. So whether it's 3D printing, whether it's these different sort of dyes we're building, we will get to that point, and that's going to be super exciting. You know, think about this, a translucent chicken breast, right? You know, that skin at, the, at that stage, you know, how do you affect that, right? And so that's the type of things we're looking at and working on, and we'll get there eventually. Is that another billion-dollar energy size bet, or is that no. a, a skunk works research team? 
so we have skunk works going on in, in other areas that are that are even further out, and that's how, tend, that's how we tended to, to employ those types of groups. You know, skunk, if people don't understand that word, it's like it's like groups that, that sort of work over in a corner and they start to smell because they're they're, <laughs> they're, they're working so hard on concepts. But um, no, those are, that's pretty mainstream for us. That's pretty that's pretty right down the center the center for us. It's really about you know in that curve, that innovation curve. You know, it becomes harder as you get closer, right? And so. But we, our program here, our, our center is called the Manhattan Beach Project, and we call it that because we're, we're next to Manhattan Beach. But more importantly, my initial foray in the energy sector was working a lot around the Department of Energy, and particularly around their weapons sites where they had a lot of uranium and things like that. And uh, so I learned a tremendous amount. I read all Richard Rhodes' books about the Manhattan Project and about the Second World War. And the notion of bringing together a, a General Groves and, a, and, a, and an Oppenheimer, bring the best scientists, best managers together to pursue a really important global issue, which was to beat the Germans, really resonated with me. And I wanted to create that sense of urgency and scale in our facilities here. And obviously, we're, we're not that big, but, uh, but that same sense of purpose prevails that, that building. And, uh, and as we get closer, you know, you, you, you're going to have... You know, it's, a, it's that process of iteration, and, and I think you're going to get there, but it just gets harder as you get closer. You said you had some things that were farther out. I, I have to ask, what is farther out than a stake? <laughs> oh, like different technologies for getting there. Okay. You don't have like a like two people who are Octopus like, we got to make a brisket. Like, we're doing it today. <laughs> no. And we're staying away from, there'll be no like exotic meats or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last question here. I really, I, it seems like you're a very competitive person. You've talked a lot about market share. I've asked you about your competitors. There are new kinds of competitors, right? The, the big companies are coming after you. You had an investor in Tyson, which is one of the big companies. They, they sold off their investment. They're starting their own plant-based division. When I asked you about Impossible, I, I feel like every CEO gets a book of how to talk about their competitors. So like them being successful is good for us. I hear this from CEOs all the time. How big is the total pie? Are we still in the, the mode of consumer education? We're growing the market. We don't know how, it's gonna, how big it's going to be. Or is there, are you just shaving off points from traditional meat vendors? Or yeah. is Tyson a real competitor to you? So it's a good question. I mean, I think where I would different, uh, be slightly different from a traditional CEO on this is that, you know, because we're so mission oriented, like I actually do appreciate the impossibles doing what they're doing. And, and as well, because we're growing a market, you know, if someone else spending money to grow that market actually really does help us. And imagine if, if they failed at Burger King, that would be bad for us. Right. You know, so, 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 so we do, we do have really common interests, um, but in a different approach. And I think it's up to the consumer to decide, you know, that's the, that's the difference is that I'm not going to attack them. I mean, they're a good company, but it's up to the consumer side of which choice that they, they're, they're going to make. And, and we feel the non-GMO staying away from things like heme iron uh, due to the controversy, et cetera, is the right call. But we're both going after the meat share itself, right? This idea that we're going to, in the next 10 years, make meat obsolete is just foolish. You know, it, it's it's been around for a long time. We've got a lot of miles ahead of us in terms of making this product to be completely indistinguishable. And then it'll be up to the consumer to decide, right? And so that's the way I think about it. But we're not necessarily focused on stealing market share from them or them from us. I think it's really about growing the overall market and 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 providing a form. Like if you, the history of meat is so fascinating. Even I mean, talking about the evolutionaries, but also the more recent last hundred years. Look at the growth of the chicken business. 
you know? I mean, it was like, go back a hundred years and look at the share of, of stomach that chicken had. It really wasn't significant. It's come up and been incredibly successful as a, as a, as a challenger to beef. So there's going to be changes and it'll happen over time. But, um, you know, I think the one mistake people make is to assume that the way life is today is the way it'll be tomorrow. It's not the case. And, and the protein industry is is changing uh, dramatically. And I think we're part of that. Yeah. Well, Ethan, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Of course. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Ethan Brown for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. You can also email us at decoder at theverge.com. If you enjoyed Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson and edited by Sonia Herrero. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're taking a break next week for the holiday, but we'll be back the first week of January. See you in 2021.